1: Hello and
0: welcome to this History Extra Plus podcast, Pearl Harbour, the story of the surprise attack. This is episode five, Chaos Unleashed. I'm Ellie Cawthorne, and in this five-part series on Pearl Harbour, I'm taking a look back at this pivotal moment in global history, speaking to expert historians about the long historical roots underlying US-Japanese hostilities, following the raid as it happened and, in this final episode, exploring its far-reaching consequences.
2: Pearl Harbour actually was a detonator. It was the detonator that took this conversation about war from the political level to a deeply ingrained and emotional, cultural determination by the vast bulk of the American people to fight the Japanese. And this is why It was such a disaster for Japan, and it was so unnecessary.
0: That was the author and historian Robert Lyman, an expert on the conflict between the Allies and Japan in the Second World War. Robert's joining me in this episode to discuss the chaos that Pearl Harbour unleashed in the Pacific, tracing the chain of events it set in motion and asking, was launching the attack a terrible mistake? But before we get to that, let's start with the immediate aftermath. We ended last episode on the evening of the 7th of December, with the Japanese fleet heading back across the Pacific and officials in Washington left reeling from news of the surprise attack. And the next day, when the American public learnt of the news, they felt a similar sense of shock and outrage. Can you give us a sense of, on the 8th of December, what the response was like?
2: Absolute outrage in America. Uh, There is not a newspaper headline uh, that doesn't exhibit extraordinary emotional outrage at this perfidy.
0: One such headline from the New York Times read, Japan wars on US and Britain makes sudden attack on Hawaii. Meanwhile, splashed across the front page of the Boston Daily Globe was Japan strikes all over Pacific. But the most memorable response to the attack that day came from the president himself. In a stirring speech, Roosevelt declared to Congress, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan.
2: Roosevelt chose his words well, by design or by accident, but they really did reflect the anger that Americans felt that someone could do this behind their back. The idea that the Japanese might force itself on America by the use of military action and the deaths of several thousand young Americans was just lighting the touch paper. And it's very interesting in history to see that it's quite rare for these instances to happen. It never really happened in Britain during the war, this terrible anger that, you know, the Germans were bombing us for the first time. There was much more of a stoical acceptance in Britain that this was almost inevitable, this was going to happen. There was a sequence of events that made it more rational to to Britons when they were considering the aggression of Nazi Germany. Not so America with Pearl Harbor. This really was a shot in the arm, an injection of anger and emotion that sustained the American public in all the sacrifices and trials that they were then going to subsequently be asked to sustain throughout the war. And it's important that we see this, actually. Really, really interestingly enough, war weariness never occurred in the American public. You never saw this expressed uh, throughout the long years of the war. And it's a very interesting characteristic of societies. When they've been at war a long period of time, you even saw this in the First World War, and America hadn't been involved for very long. But in the Second World War, there was something really visceral about Pearl Harbor. And it was also uh, visceral about the nature of the Japanese Enemy who had committed this perfidy that resonated incredibly powerfully. I don't think there are any other examples. Uh, I might be persuaded that I'm wrong, but i can 't think of the top of my head of any other examples in the history of the United States, particularly where this anger really hit everybody left and right, uh, popular opinion, and all of a sudden to have Japan attacking American possessions preemptively so dastardly cannot be exaggerated, and I think in a sense we 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 often lose the sense of outrage as we as we look back in time but um Veterans certainly, all the newspapers, all all the articles—I mean, it was what that that, that you can read now about from the time—are very, very explicit about the the anger that was felt. I mean, it really unified American political opinion as well. And it also, at a stroke, it removed the objections of the very, very large isolationist movement to the involvement of, of American troops in foreign adventures. I mean, that argument was dead, absolutely dead, on the 8th of December, or the 9th of December 1941.
0: And added to this anger in America was another emotion.
2: And I think there is a degree of embarrassment also. One of the things that sits behind all these conspiracy theories that says that Roosevelt knew the Japanese were going to attack and Churchill did as well and they agreed to keep quiet about it, which, of course, is absolute nonsense. There is no evidence whatsoever to support that is the fact that Americans were deeply embarrassed by their lack of preparation, by the lack of effective defence around Pearl Harbour. And there's a little bit of humiliation involved in this as well, which uh, was another spur to America pulling its finger out and uh, taking the war aggressively to the Japanese.
0: What about the response from the other key player in this story, Japan? Remember that up until the point of Pearl Harbour, the Japanese people had been repeatedly told that they were involved in a desperate fight for survival, led to believe that hostile encircling Western powers threatened to strangle and destroy their means of subsistence in Asia. And years of indoctrination in this fatalistic mindset undoubtedly shaped the public response to the attack on Pearl Harbour.
2: In Japan, the news was carefully manufactured But there was general jubilation, uh, certainly in the press. I mean, the extent to which there was jubilation in the streets is hard to gather. But certainly the newspapers were full of the the press announcements, basically articulating a story of uh, David versus Goliath and also the daring do. I mean, we we mustn't forget it was an extraordinary operation tactically. As a Japanese admiral uh, said at the time, it was a dramatic tactical success, but a strategic defeat. And, and he was absolutely right. The point about this is that in Japan, they had been vindicated. The arguments that had been very popularly promulgated through for at least 12, maybe 18 months about the fact that America was restricting its ability to achieve its ambitions because it refused to sell it oil and give it access to uh, scarce resources had been uh, overcome by Japanese greatness, the the strength of its military arm and the sacrifice and heroism of its boys. And that's not hard to understand, although very few people would have given a moment's thought to the consequences. And I think that's that's a real problem here. The, the Japanese were pleased that they were able to pull it off, because actually, as an operation, lots of things could have gone wrong. The attack fleet could have been discovered early on and, and attacked preemptively. And, and, and therefore, the dramatic um, surprise assault on Pearl Harbor could have turned out very differently. Uh, and so the Japanese were lucky in that respect. And I think there was a sense of relief, uh, certainly in Tokyo, and the large Japanese cities that had been pulled off and they had been successful. And actually some of the uh, newspapers at the time almost said this was the end of the war. There was no way that America could recover from this. Japan had done what its uh, people had asked it to do.
0: At 12.30 on the 8th of December, in that rousing speech about the date which will live in infamy, Roosevelt also asked Congress to declare war on Japan, appealing that, quote, "With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God." The vote was passed, with only one member of Congress, Jeanette Rankin, voting against it. But was a declaration of war a done deal even before Roosevelt had made such a stirring address? Was it inevitable after an attack like Pearl Harbour?
2: America really had no choice but to declare war. I think one of the reasons for that is that the Japanese claims for the previous six months that it had exhausted all routes to um, removing the opportunity for war were patently false. No really substantive conversations had been had taken place. There had been a lot of political dialogue, diplomatic dialogue, but that was not substantive in the sense that the Japanese never said, "If we have a conversation about this and we agree this, we won't you know do that that didn't happen and The diplomatic conversations that took place can be seen as a as a diplomatic subterfuge they They weren't real, and that's the point. Pearl Harbor was an excuse by the Japanese to achieve what they wanted militarily. And as a consequence, America had no choice but to de- declare war.
0: And as news of the attacks spread across the globe, the fact that this event would have global implications was not lost on others. Over in Britain, Winston Churchill had quite a different response to those in America. In his own history of the Second World War, he later recalled how that night he, quote, went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful.
2: For the previous year, Churchill's primary strategic ambition was to persuade Roosevelt to join the war. All the evidence uh, was that Roosevelt wanted to declare war when the time was right, when he knew that he had America behind him. Pearl Harbor gave him that opportunity. Uh, But Churchill had told him that, you know, not a minute would pass after an attack on america by japan that britain would declare war on japan and he did so within the hour i mean he was the quickest of the blocks here was the opportunity for him to go back to america and say whatever pain you are going to go through we will go through it with you we'll fight this war together and um both Roosevelt and Churchill knew this time was coming. They didn't know how it would come. And it was, a, it was an opportunity for both of them, actually, to start fighting the war together. And it's very interesting that Roosevelt had agreed at the, Atlantic, at the Atlantic Charter in Quebec in 1941 that were there to be a war on two fronts, the war against Germany would take place first. But in order for that to happen, Britain would put all the resources of its empire behind America in fighting the Japanese. And that's often lost sight of in the early days of the war.
0: Churchill wasn't the only international player to see the global powers steadily falling into two camps. Over in Germany, Hitler was relieved that the Japanese, with whom he'd entered into an alliance, had finally laid their cards on the table. On the 11th of December, four days after the attack, Nazi Germany declared war on America. And these declarations of war weren't just abstract statements by politicians in cloistered chambers they had real and immediate impacts for ordinary people, notably the significant Japanese-American community, who were then living in the United States.
2: One of the immediate reactions of the American people, I mean, it's a very interesting dynamic here, and it's worth just having a look at this uh, below the surface, because very, very quickly an executive order was signed that resulted in the internment of uh, about 110,000 Japanese in very, very quick order.
0: Under Executive Order 9066 from President Roosevelt, these Japanese-Americans were interned in camps known as relocation centres, and their financial assets were frozen. One of those interned was Roy Matsumoto. 28 years old at the time, Roy had been born and raised in California. It was very hard when I lost my freedom, he recalled. I lost just about everything, almost all my personal property and financial assets. The government's excuse? It was alien property. I was so mad. While some Japanese Americans, like Roy, later joined the US Armed Forces as interpreters, many remained interned for the duration of the war. In 1988, Congress called the actions against Japanese Americans at this time a, quote, grave injustice. And of course, the consequences of Pearl Harbour went far beyond domestic policy. By bringing America into the war, the attack heralded in a huge conflict in Asia and the Pacific, not to mention supercharging the fight in Europe. We don't have time to go into all the ins and outs of the Pacific War here. We'd need an entire other podcast series to do that. But we will delve into a couple of the issues that Pearl Harbor played directly into. Firstly, what was the immediate impact of Pearl Harbor on the fight in the Pacific? When the dust settled after the attack? Just how significant was the damage to the US Pacific fleet? And how did that affect their ability to go to war in the Pacific arena?
2: Do you know what? I don't think it was significant. I think the the reason why it wasn't significant is we just need to roll the calendar forward a few months to Midway, where, you know, in the middle of 1942, the ability of the Japanese fleet to operate decisively in the Pacific was destroyed by the, uh, by the American fleet. And this would have happened with or without um, Pearl Harbor. And I think people forget this. And as I said earlier, this wasn't a battleship-on-battleship confrontation. This was the ability to stop the Japanese from supporting their uh, troops across the Pacific and the islands that they had taken, the territories they had taken, and to sustain their fighting ability. I mean, it got to the point in 1943 that very few ships actually were allowed free passage across the Pacific. The the war very quickly moved from a war of naval action to being a war of American naval operations against land-based targets. So there is an argument that says, look, you know, there were a number of very significant hits on Pearl Harbor in terms of the American naval capability. But in the end, it didn't make any difference. It didn't make any difference also because the American ability to uh, refloat off the shallow floor of Pearl Harbor and uh, repair those, uh, many of those vessels was absolutely remarkable and uh, demonstrated the quite extraordinary capability that America had in terms of its industrial power. The Japanese knew about uh, American industrial power and strength, but they risked it all, expecting that the Americans wouldn't respond, that the Americans would think that it's not worth you know, a bloody war in the Pacific by 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 reacting against this and how wrong they were.
0: I wanted to ask you also about the military legacy of Pearl Harbour, especially on the Pacific War. So something that's often spoken about is how it highlighted the importance of aircraft carriers. And I wonder if you could identify any ways it did, maybe it didn't impact the shape of naval warfare or the Pacific War that followed.
2: I think it undoubtedly uh, shaped the development of the of the war, and of course we know that the American Pacific Fleet, which had three aircraft carriers, uh, those aircraft carriers weren't in Pearl Harbor at the time. Escapes got free, and and, uh, and that was very important. And the Japanese were held and hock to a concept in the nineteen twenties and thirties of the strategic power of the battleship. Britain and the United States also were firmly wedded to this view that battleships were the vessels of strategic power around which all other force in a naval sense coalesced. And of course, with the loss of the battleships at Pearl Harbor, that supposedly should have denuded the Americans from any ability to to counterattack. But we know, of course, from Uh, what happened afterwards, leading to Midway and thereafter. That actually it was the ability to project force that was the important thing, not the battleship. The battleship actually became a target, particularly to motor torpedo boats and submarines. It's important to understand that battleships still had a role and played a very significant role in the Pacific War, but actually as part of a wider set of capabilities, which involved increasingly aircraft carrier, which were flexible, uh, dynamic could be moved very quickly, uh, and could project force in large amounts very, very quickly. And the the, the battles that took place across the Pacific uh, thereafter were aircraft carrier combat orientated. And I think that's really important. I mean, that, that's one of the important and enduring legacies of the war, which is to make people realize that actually battleships, have their place, but they need to be fully integrated into a, a set of other capabilities that pr- can protect them and can make sure that their, their guns are used when it's necessary. But they are not the, uh, the answer to a maiden spray to use a phrase. Pearl Harbor decisively demonstrated that actually the battleships were vulnerable but the, the power behind the throne, the American throne, were actually those three aircraft carriers, the ability to fly aircraft off, find enemy ships, and dive bomb them. The two British capital ships that were sunk um, a few days after Pearl Harbor, Prince of Wales and the Repulse in the South China Sea, were sunk by torpedo bombers and dive attack aircraft. They were land based, but they could easily have come from aircraft carriers. And that's the point. They weren't sunk by battle. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash
1: History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p.com/historyextra. extra.
0: I'm really interested by Robert's take here that while in the immediate aftermath Pearl Harbour was hailed as a great success by the Japanese and a terrible catastrophe by the Americans. If we actually zoom out and look at the attack from a purely strategical point of view, it didn't really matter all that much. It didn't cripple American power in the Pacific and, if anything, only supercharged the American war machine with an unprecedented desire for revenge. This leads us on to one of the central questions that's often raised about the attack, one which I wanted to put to Robert. Just to turn to what you were saying about strategy. So obviously this unleashed everything that was to come with the Pacific War. A lot of people often say, well, Pearl Harbor was the worst decision that the Japanese ever made. What would you say to that?
2: I think it was. I think it was a disaster decision. It was an unnecessary decision. The Japanese had a number of options that open to them. If they had decided that they wanted to pursue the idea of creating by force the co-prosperity sphere, which is what they had articulated publicly for a number of years, they could have done it without actually involving the Americans. And it's very interesting, actually. I'm of the view that the Japanese could easily have invaded Hong Kong Malaya and taken Singapore, and also the Dutch East Indies possessions as well, without touching America at all. And, and therefore, there is an argument that says, certainly I make the argument that uh, the Japanese could have achieved their aims in the, in the Second World War without involving America.
0: Is that a widely held view, or do, do historians still debate
2: that? Historians don't tend to debate it. It's not widely held, but it, I think it's a, it's a valid view for, for this reason. We need to remember that America was focused and had just been persuaded to focus on the war in Europe. Uh, if America had been parked by Japan uh, in the Pacific, its uh, its forces not being touched, America could have focused its um, effort on fighting the war in Europe, and Japan could have got on with uh, gobbling up Malaya in particular, Burma and the Dutch East Indies. There was an equally strong argument that didn't win over in Tokyo, that actually Japan uh, should leave America on its own and, and allow circumstances to then follow and be negotiated through with the Japanese saying, well, this isn't your war, stay out of it. And I think there's a very good chance of that actually working, because the Japanese at no time in their conversations in 1941 considered what might happen to American public opinion. And this is because America has a notoriously fractious culture, like all democracies, because we live in democracies where diverse voices are encouraged. That wasn't the case in in Japan. And The Japanese high command never understood this. Whenever they saw an argument in a newspaper that said, you know, we should as Americans do X, Y, and Z, they took it as read that that was policy or that was the way all Americans thought. It wasn't the case at all. And they'd never, ever thought. There is no evidence. I've not found, having studied this for years, no evidence in the files of the Japanese actually considering what might happen in America as a consequence of this attack. They saw it all in operational terms. And that was a serious, serious mistake. So yes, it was a serious mistake because without it, that touch paper wouldn't have been lit. So just ask yourself the question, if Pearl Harbor didn't happen, would that anger towards Japan have been so resonant? Well, possibly, possibly not. Japan didn't understand it at the time, and they walked into a trap of their own making.
0: So it sounds there like they really miscalculated America's mindset. But do you think that they also miscalculated America's military strength or potential for military strength?
2: Oh, absolutely. And it's very interesting that um, the the, the story I I like to tell is that the size of the American army at the start of the Second World War was was smaller than Portugal's. I mean, America did not have a large standing army. It didn't have significant military power, but as you say, use the word potential, it had enormous military potential as a consequence of its industrial capability. It's also its ability to organize very quickly. And I also often use the phrase that the war was won in Detroit. And in a very real sense, it was. It was able to be the become the arsenal of democracy, to use Churchill's phrase. And um, Japan never really understood that. Well, if they did understand it, and, and of course, many people did. I don't want to denigrate Japanese understanding of America at the time, they didn't appreciate its consequences, or certainly they thought that their tactical victory would be sufficient to persuade the Americans not to involve themselves in a long, drawn-out, bloody war in the Far East. Remember, America was, and had been since the 1850s, a Pacific nation. It had undertaken a number of military expeditions in South America and the Philippines, but it wasn't seen to be militarily aggressive. It was seen to be Pacific as a culture. It was more intent on uh, making money and um, extending its global influence by trade and so on, rather than by by military might. Uh, and there was a, a sense in Japan, certainly in the the corridors of power in the high command, that America didn't have the guts or the willpower or the commitment to take the next step, which was to engage in full-scale, bloody, sacrificial war. And that's very well documented. The Japanese actually thought the Americans wouldn't do it. And what a mistake it was, because once riled, the Americans proved themselves completely capable of making those sacrifices necessary to win a war, where ultimately it was man to man, bayonet to bayonet, in terrible, terrible fighting across the Far East and the Pacific. And that was where Japanese politicians, uh, dominated by the army and the navy, were completely at fault in the, the years running up to 1941. 1941, Pearl Harbor was a disaster for Japan.
0: So I know I said we weren't going to go into all the ins and outs of the Pacific War, and we aren't, but when we reflect on Pearl Harbor's place in 20th century history, there is a certain story that's told about it. And in this story, Pearl Harbour is framed as a catalyst, a catalyst for an escalating series of events that culminated in tragedy for Japan in 1945.
2: The truth is, the Japanese saw this at the time, It was a Pearl Harbor was a tactical success, but a strategic failure. And it was a failure that actually meant that Japan was going to lose the war. And it was a failure for Japan, and the penalty was paid by the Japanese people, because we had a militaristic society whose only instruments were military. They had to fight the war or not. They had no other options. They couldn't surrender, because they would then surrender themselves and surrender their political structures and power bases and systems and everything that they represented in Japan. And it's very interesting, as you see the war following its tragic course in 1943 and 44, the Japanese people having no recourse to any alternatives. It's very, very much like Nazi Germany. As Germany was ringed by the Allies and has started to reduce on itself in 1944, 1945, the people had no choice. And I think one of the really tragic things about Japan is that The people obediently followed their leaders. And in July 1945, so only a few months before the end of the war, over a million Japanese men and women were recruited into a dad's army organisation in order to be able to defend the home islands from the expected assault. As Hitler expected all the Germans to die for Gross Deutschland, Hirohito and Tojo expected, not Hirohito, but Tojo certainly expected the Japanese to die for Japan, because it was the only honourable thing to do.
0: I think that when this story is told historically, often the narrative arc that's told begins with Pearl Harbour, takes us through the Pacific War, and then we end up with the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Is that a narrative arc that you think stands up, really, if we examine it?
2: I I don't think it does. Uh, It's a historical or a chronological arc, but what needs to be understood is, first of all, uh, why did the Japanese, why did Hirohito surrender? Now, in order to be able to understand that, you need to understand what was happening in Tokyo at the time because not all of the Japanese wanted to surrender, even after Nagasaki and Hiroshima. In fact, the war party led by Tojo was dead against... Um, surrender, to the extent that they were quite happy to murder the, the sun god themselves, Hirohito, uh, in order to keep on fighting. And uh, not many people are are aware, as they ought to be, of the civil war that was raging in the higher echelons of politics in Tokyo in those days, in the week preceding the surrender on August the 15th, 1945. Very, very significant. And there's a, there was a very good chance of Hirohito being killed and the war continuing, regardless of the sacrifice of those hundreds of thousands of people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because that sacrifice was what militarism demanded. And Hiroshima and Nagasaki were horrendous. But we need to step into the Japanese military mind at the time and ask, well, how significant was it? It wasn't really significant. Sacrifice and death and the implosion of their society was the natural end state of what they were fighting for. They wanted to win, of course, but if they weren't going to win, they were going to take everyone down with them. It was exactly like Hitler. I mean, psychologically, I think the the same framework exists.
0: From what Robert says here, whether or not it's fair to see a story that starts with Pearl Harbour culminating in the atom bombs of 1945 – It is interesting to note the parallels in the Japanese mindset in 1941 and 1945. Their feelings of a nation being pushed towards annihilation, where the only option was kill or be killed. But after the Americans had turned the tables in the four years after the attack on Pearl Harbour, and Japan met a galling defeat in 1945, what then? How was the Pearl Harbor raid remembered in the decades following the war in the U.S. and Japan?
2: In America, Pearl Harbor has always been a byword for perfidy, and I don't think that's changed. Actually, it's uh, it's quite extraordinary how you know Pearl Harbor will go down in the, the language of of history as a sneak attack that was entirely unnecessary and really did like to touch paper. In, in Japan, I don't think there was ever any necessity to sit back and and cogitate deeply or meaningful about Pearl Harbor. I think, you know, if you if you looked at the operation from a purely tactical perspective, you'd be very pleased with the outcome. It did demonstrate uh, Japanese military prowess and planning and fortitude and courage and so on. But of course, these military actions have no meaning if they don't have a strategic effect. And the strategic effect was disaster for Japan. Was
0: there a recognition of that in Japan?
2: Yes, there is. And there has been. And I think um, it's very interesting, actually, the the argument that I do make and have made for, for a number of years about Japan is the acceptance of American military decision-making or allied military decision-making can be seen very clearly in the way in which Japan turned its back on militarism immediately. It's almost as though the light was switched off, or actually the light of democratic liberation was turned on. And it's very interesting reading William Manchester's book on MacArthur, an American Caesar, where he does articulate this argument that MacArthur realized that Post-war Japan, this was not an exercise and should not be seen as an exercise in retribution, but in demonstrating that there was an alternative to the single-minded militarism of the pre-war era. And the extraordinary thing is how quickly that was accepted and adopted by Japan. And Japan is one of America's closest allies and has been since the Second World War. Now, where else do you get that? It is an extraordinary change in a political position of a country.
0: That change in position does seem extraordinary. When we consider the vitriol between Japan and the US at the moment of Pearl Harbour in 1941, it does seem remarkable that these two nations would go on to become close allies not long
2: after. Now, we just need to remind ourselves that actually Japan has always been quite attracted to America. There's always been a very close relationship, well, certainly since the turn of the century, between uh, Japanese culture and American culture. It's, it's coalesced incredibly well and it moved very quickly almost overnight from a, a, a cult of militarism to uh, an agreement, an acquiescence supporting the American military administration and the new political direction for Japan.
0: Bringing the story forward to 2021, where does Pearl Harbour sit in the national narratives of Japan and America? What role does it play in the national story, the national psyche?
2: They're both very important. Pearl Harbor, large numbers of people go to Pearl Harbor to pay their respects to the graveyard and Pearl Harbor and to, and to see it and it, it's it's a very Important part of the American psyche, in the same way that Dunkirk, interestingly enough, is a very important part of the British psyche, because it was such a turning point for us in the war. It was a, such a dramatic failure strategically, and it's exactly the same with the United States. The United States wasn't ready for war in 1941. Just consider what might have happened had Pearl Harbor not taken place, and America w- was able to concentrate on Europe. I suspect that the national attention to war and the cause against the Axis forces and against Germany in particular would have been much slower to get going. But Pearl Harbor accelerated all of that. All of a sudden, overnight, America was on a war fitting. And it's remained a really important part of the American psyche since. It hasn't changed their attitude to Japan. They're very friendly with Japan and they have every right to be. But in terms of their historic memory, it's one of the most pivotal things. You know, go to an American school now and ask them about Pearl Harbor everyone will tell you about it. There's a very different um, story in Japan. When I go to Japan and I, sort of in, in uh, recent years, have interviewed veterans, they're the only people who are still interested in the war. Uh, uh, Japan moved on very quickly from the war. It, it was a very, very visceral... had a very visceral impact on Japanese culture and society, and most people just turn their back on it. There's very little real analysis of the war, very few historians... I mean... It, Someone was talking to me very recently about how Britain seems to be obsessed with the Second World War. I don't think that's entirely right, but we are very interested, and it was an incredibly important part of our national story. And there are lots of historians doing really serious work in the Second World War, and that's fascinating. You don't find that in Japan. It's actually really difficult to find anything published in Japan about the war, apart from the memoirs of soldiers who fought there, which are written for the regimental associations and so on. It's it's not part of Japanese culture or public memory, as indeed it is in the United States and the United Kingdom.
0: Over the course of this series, we've grappled with some fascinating and often very tricky questions about Pearl Harbour. Why the attack happened whether the Americans should have seen it coming and if the Japanese made a fatal mistake in launching it. And hopefully the experts that we've spoken to have given you a better understanding of why this date which will live in infamy was such a pivotal moment in modern global history and one that's still important to reflect on 80 years on.
2: I think that the most important thing is not not about the technicalities of of the operation, it was very spectacularly done and all the rest of it. And, and I don't think we should dwell necessarily on the perfidy and the fact that it was a surprise and all the rest of it. I think the really important thing is actually the extent of Uh, the use of power in modern states and the purpose of power and the use of military force and whether it's worthwhile or not. And I think the whole of the Second World War should really be a story about the utility of force. Why Japan felt it was necessary to create an empire by beating other empires rather than coalescing with them. We found ourselves in 1941 with states that believed in force as as an instrument of of power for its own good and those conversations always overstated what power what military power could achieve. That's the story about the Second World War in the Far East. It was a disaster of enormous proportions. It was entirely unnecessary. 20, 30 million people lost their lives. The world was set back three or four generations. You know, we will never forget it. And it wasn't necessary. It did not achieve what anyone wanted to achieve who set out to use force in the first instance.
0: Thanks for listening. This series was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorn. My guest for this episode was the author and historian Robert Lyman. His latest book is A War of Empires, Japan, India, Burma and Britain, 1941-45. That's out now, published by Osprey. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Rob Blackmore.